Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Diamond Styles, and I am the master chef, cooking you up something succulent and divine. It's your boy, Zaheer, and we are serving hot talk and cool iced tea. And I'm Mia Mix, here to set the tone and make sure the mood is right. So come on in and get comfortable. Pull up a chair, have a seat. You can even take your shoes off. Wait, not if your feet is down. <laughs> oh, hell no. Welcome, Welcome to Marsha's Plate. The time has come for you to be the change you want them to be, yeah. No more running around filled with all hypocrisy, yeah. It starts from the inside, it spreads wide, and everything will be all right. Conversation hashtag Marsha's Plate on oh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We want to hear what you guys have to say. You can also help us build community by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash Marsha's Plate. By contributing to this podcast, you help us continue our powerful work to change culture one episode at a time. So let's get started. Hey, what's up? This is your girl Diamond. Um, I am here with two amazing people that I love, not only in my leadership life, but also in my personal life that I have grown to consider friends. And it is Arya Saeed and Mariah Moore. Arya Saeed is the founder of the Transgender Cultural District, and Mariah Moore is the co-founder of House of Tulip. So we wanted to bring them on to kind of share their brilliance with y'all and have some kiki girl, trans, black trans girl fun. So on Marsha's Plate. So I wanted to, why I wanted to really, well, welcome to Marsha's Plate. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for having us. (laughs) So I wanted to start off because what I found interesting in researching um, about y'all it's, it's, it's kind of funny um, when you have, when I have guests on the show that are my friends, because I kind of feel like I know stuff. And then it's like, as I get to Googling and da, 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 I'm like, oh, oh, that's cute. <laughs> so I, I love that part of um, searching for my friends. And so I, I was trying to find a thread um, that both of you all share. And a thread that I found quite interesting is that both of y'all are from cities that at some point in our country's history were queer meccas. Now we see, based on that history, what's happening now in this current time is that we see a lot of gentrification of um, our areas and our culture and our city. We're kind of slowly being erased. So I want to start off with you, Arya. You know, Mm -hmm. due to the capitalistic nature of Silicon Valley, which is the home of some of the largest technology corporations in, mm-hmm. in the world. San Francisco or the Bay Area has become, has one of the highest cost of livings in the world. Yeah. And so that has pushed a lot of black people out, a lot of trans people out, and just kind of shuffled us around the city in a different way, which, term, which in turn exacerbates the um, gentrification and erasure of trans culture. And so that's one of the reasons why you led and founded Transcultural District. Can you talk about 
what you have seen over the years and you're, you, you just made 30 last week in your little years. <laughs> you talk about how, you know, how that inspired your work. So I am a trans woman who came to San Francisco because it was a place that everyone told me I would find like liberation and equality and, and acceptance as a, as a young trans person. And um, like so many trans people uh, that come from all across the United States and um, across the world, uh, we all end up in the Tenderloin neighborhood. Um, and I think part of that is, um, sorry, y'all froze on my side, but I think part of it is that um, the, the, the Tenderloin has traditionally been a container space for, I like to call it like the red light, all the things related to the red light district slash um, the undesirable things of San Francisco. But um, the Tenderloin holds the densest uh, transgender population of any other neighborhood um, and in any United States metropolitan city. And um, like you said, like the, the tech industry coming to San Francisco and, and the Bay Area and really sort of shifting um, who gets to live here has adversely impacted our community. Um, yet and still, however, um, so many trans people call the Tenderloin home or, or have a connection to it. And I think, you know, that, that really played a role um, in the formation of the trans district and our desire for a neighborhood that so many of us have a connection to um, actually being like our, our, our own little utopia and like what possibilities could come out of that. Mariah, you too. So you come from New Orleans. New Orleans, because of Katrina, not that they weren't trying it before, but because of Katrina, they really, it exacerbated the problem of gentrification. Not only did this big natural disaster push people into other cities and push people out of the cities, but it also allowed, you know, companies and white folks to come in and buy up land that particularly a lot of black folks lived in in New Orleans. So I know, I know one of our personal friends, we're not going to say her name, but one of our personal friends, you know, she went through an issue where she was homeless during, during Katrina, didn't have anywhere to go. And then she comes back to the city that she loves and she can't even stay or afford the city, the, the, the place where she used to stay. So you, can you talk about how you saw that affect your city and affect the trans culture? New Orleans was a huge and robust city before Katrina. And I want to just make this clear that New Orleans will never be the same. Like it will, New Orleans as we know it will will forever cease to exist. There will be other versions that uh, come along, but nothing like the New Orleans that we knew. Um, before Katrina, they were uh, the medical industrial complex, the big big pharma. They were partnering together to eviscerate a whole historically black neighborhood to put a hospital in its place. And when Katrina, um, that was um, where now stands University Medical Center, uh, which is uh, ran by LSU, 
um, it replaced Charity Hospital. And so that was already something that was being planned. Um, they were planning to, to, to take that land and to turn it into um, a medical industrial complex um, into what it is today. And Hurricane Katrina just so happened to happen, which made it that much easier for that to progress and for that to actually, uh, for that project to actually come to life. Um, yes, these people came into our city. They acquired land illegally um, because they said things like, well, these people aren't reachable. We don't know where they might be. They owe property taxes, all sorts of things that are just very illegal. But because Louisiana has such wide laws, it allowed them to do these things, right? It allowed them, until this day, people still have properties that are being adjudicated because they were illegally sold or auctioned. Um, and so, you know, the trans community, most of us were renters, right? Uh, and so think about how many of these rental properties there were before the storm versus, uh, and how they were mostly privately owned. So a lot of these properties were uh, properties that have been historically passed down. When we talk about generation, like in, in black families, these houses had been passed down. Uh, a lot of these were rental properties. Um, a lot of these were rented out by folks who, just to be clear, like New Orleans is, is known for hospitality and our hospitality industry. So at the end of the day, when this new system of uh, market pricing and uh, credit scoring and that whole number where you fall on the risk assessment to rent to came along, New Orleanians, a large majority of New Orleanians could not even, they didn't even fit in, fit that criteria. So I let alone the trans community, right? Um, but back to the trans community, uh, the French Quarter was the home of the girls. We had Papa Joe's, we had the Roundup, we had Double Play, you know, had all these bars that the girls made a, a, a very good living in. Um, it was safe for the most part. Um, and the girls were always on the block. I remember when I was in school um, at Jackson State, we would travel down to New Orleans. And it was so amazing. This is pre, this is 2001. And um, I remember going down there and I'm with a bunch of cis girls. Like it's like six of us in total. Mm -hmm. I'm the only trans girl with them. And I'm walking down Bourbon and I see the trans girls with their signs at Papa Joe's in the middle of this really like this almost cisgender mecca of bars and things. And the trans girls is like, hey, with their signs, trying to get people to come in. And just because, just the fact that they were in the middle of this, this almost like this party that was happening, I was like, wow, this is kind of progressive as fuck at the time. Cause I was young, I was like 20 and I was like, I've never seen my city. I come from my, I come from Mississippi folks and um, Indiana folks. Um, so in in my cities, I had never experienced trans folks being a center. And even though it's 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 kind of like marginalized, it's still they had a place in this culture here. And it was so amazing for me to see that. 
So I definitely remember the pre-Katrina time when the girls were, I don't want to say thriving, but they were a part of the culture. We, we don't have any of those spots anymore that, that really cater to the girls. Um, you know, we barely have anything that is black and black that caters to LGBTQ, the black LGBTQ community. I mean, we have the page that's left um, and the gallery, which was newly open, but this, this new New Orleans has erased uh, so much of our rich culture um, that we knew. Um, and it's increasingly, uh, it's just increasingly disappearing every single day. You know, you can barely find an apartment to rent that's below $2,000. That's unheard of in New Orleans. So, Aria, with the Transcultural District in San Francisco, how are you using that as a tool to combat what we are discussing? Yeah, um... So much of what Mariah said about the context of New Orleans just made me think of all the things that we used to have and and here for trans people um, in our neighborhood and how much of that is actually gone. And we're seeing that too in the um, the Castro. You know, San Francisco is famous for the Castro, um, and and so many of those businesses are uh, before the pandemic were. We're struggling, but even with the pandemic now, are struggling because the the landscape of their neighborhood has changed as well. Um, you know, I think um, gentrification happens in so many different ways, and like when gay white folks move into a neighborhood, there is a way that it makes it more desirable for um, other communities to come and want to live there. And I think the Castro is having an experience where they made it so desirable that now a lot of them are are pushed out and priced out. Um, and so cis white folks are moving in with their, you know, having babies and stuff and then uh, going to the city hall and, and protesting like the traditions of the Castro. Like a lot of people walk around nude in the Castro. Like um, there's like a lot of nudist and like they're trying to take that away now. And like, you know, this is a community that created a culture for itself. Um, and so, yeah, the trans district, I think we have so much that we are struggling with because um, a lot of, you know, for those listening, um, you know, there's so many loose examples of what a cultural district can be and is and, um, no matter what city you go to, you, you can probably find a Chinatown, um, you know, maybe uh, a little Italy or old Ukraine or, um, you know, uh, an area that uh, is populated by a particular community that has a history and a presence um, and, and has a generational stake in that neighborhood and, and, and really create their own economy. And, and the rest of us who are not a part of those communities get to come in and, and, and get a taste of the culture and, um, and, and to buy local and, um, and, and support their economy. And uh, the trans district, you know, I think we are definitely inspired by the legacy and the, um, the impact that Chinatown here has. Um, it is the... Uh, a lot of people don't know San Francisco has the largest Chinese population outside of China. 
Um, and there's such a richness to San Francisco's Chinatown in particular. Um, it's a place that like a lot of the fortune cookies in the United States were um, made here. Like there's so many different things, so much rich history. And, um, and so we, you know, of course we want this neighborhood to be that space. Um, but we also have to acknowledge that we don't have the same access that those communities had. Like we don't have, you know, trans grandparents that are passing down their restaurant or store or bookstore or bank or whatever to, you know, trans children and then creating that generational wealth. Um, and, and our community here at San Francisco, um, you know, I think every city has a lot of the same things um, when it comes to disparity for our girls and, and all trans people. Um, but I think in San Francisco, our biggest struggle is that we don't have economic or housing solutions because San Francisco is the most expensive city in the world right now. Um, like a year ago, it was not uncommon for people to be renting a studio at 4000 a month. Um, and the prices just go up from there. We're seeing a shift with the pandemic, but I digress. Um, and, so, and, to add, and to add to that point, we also don't have the, the, the help of being a model minority, like the stereotype of being a model minority. Mm -hmm. We're looked at, we're not, sometimes Asian communities and other communities that are particularly non-Black ones um, can can be looked at as potential and uh, potential to be the model minority. A trans woman can't be the model minority just mm -hmm. based on the nature of how people think about transness. We, they're not gonna think about investing in our community and giving us actual infrastructure to help us preserve our culture. What trans culture, what, what have you contributed? Like at least them, because they have had this history in America of being, being placed as a model minority, they, they can look and say, ooh, this makes our city look culturally diverse. If we invest in the Chinese community and give them money and give them structure on how to stay here, it makes our city look good. They don't look at our community as an investment or as um, a diverse, uh, a, con a contribution to the diversity makes the city look good. Mm -hmm. Well, Diamond, to your point too, I think also... Um, we're in a tricky reality where both of these populations hold different fetishes for, for people. And so, you know, white Americans have a fetish for Asian culture in a way that they do not for black culture. They, I mean, they try it on, they try black culture on for size, but, um, <laughs> in, you know, braids or whatever makeup we're doing or our body shapes and, and whatnot. But I think, culturally overall like the broader public is mesmerized by the orient and the east and there's like a fetish there that's the culture albeit fetishized is still respected right they don't deny it. when they still are when they still are shit they deny 
that they that that they care that they like it and want it and blah blah blah. They deny it, but when they steal their shit, it's like, oh, we just love the culture. They're not even saying they love our shit. They're just stealing it and trying to act like it. Well, they said, yeah, they say they don't they don't admit they don't admit where it was created or who created it. They take it on as their own, as if I mean, with the whole like uh, I'm, the do rag debacle. Uh, you remember that? Like this woman, this white woman creates this satin do rag so that white women can wake up with perfect hair in the morning. What? Get out of here! <laughs> right? Like, come on now. <laughs> yeah, and so you know, like, um, Amer- uh, I mean, in the context of, of American culture, there's a fetish for for Asian culture and cuisine and um film and art right and then of course asia is also a destination so you know people can fly there and and immerse themselves in the experience with trans people um the fetish is different (laughs) and we're not a destination in the same way so (laughs) i mean you can fly there i just don't know if you'll fly back but um, <laughs> destination of paradise, though. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think um, the district, um, we unlike a lot of cultural districts, we're having to create a, a solid foundation for our community to be able to rise, so that a hundred years from now, uh, the vision that we had as founders of the district will will actually be actualized and, and have evolved far beyond what I think any of us could imagine. And so um, we are trying to address it in multiple strategies from, you know, of course, um, showcasing transgender art and culture. And um, I think we've done tidbits this uh, these last two years and, and we're about to go forward with some really exciting Yay. things to really showcase um, obviously right now like what what is transgender culture and how can the transgender cultural district play a part in expressing that to multiple audiences um but you know more importantly we're also working towards economic empowerment and um very similar to house of tulip um addressing um a universal need that seems to exist no matter where you are in the united states as a trans person which is um, equitable, safe, and affirming housing. Um, and so I'm really excited about our entrepreneurship program because we are, we know so many trans people who, you know, poverty is a very interesting experience where uh, we learn to be creative. I think poor folks are some of the most creative folks um, when you think about creativity because, um, and especially as Black trans people, you know, traditionally, we, we, we've learned how to, to make a check, LOL. <laughs> we've learned how to, to boost a look for the ball. We've learned how to, like, you know, use our skills to, like, monetize, uh, whether it be in sex work or doing hair or doing both or whatever it is, like, playing on, on these things. I was just thinking about how back in the day I remember um, – cis women used to always ask if me or other girls would do hair. Like, like y'all hair be looking so good and how so, a couple girls I knew who were trans then like, were like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe if I do folks' hair, they think I'm gonna be the trusted style, you know, like 
just the things. Um, and so, yeah, our entrepreneurship program is um, really designed with Black trans people in mind and um, folks who have multiple barriers to entrepreneurship, folks who otherwise would never consider themselves as possibly able to own a business. Um, maybe they have bad credit. Maybe they just know that they wouldn't get a loan or, you know, maybe it just seems too far-fetched. To, um, and obviously we're doing this in a pandemic. Um, and so, you know, it can be a little scary, but uh, we're taking folks through a program, uh, a little boot camp, um, and helping them make that dream come true. Um, and our hope is that we'll start to see um, this year the opening of, of stores and businesses owned by trans people in the neighborhood. And that um, in addition with our housing program and then, you know, creating jobs and businesses that, um, that we'll start to really see the skeleton of, of what the neighborhood can be and, and start to actually see a shift in our disparity here. So I think passing that question to you, Mariah, and the work that House of Tulip is doing. So I know in New Orleans, um, based on the U.S. Um, trans survey, um, one third of trans individuals in Louisiana will experience homelessness sometime in their life. So how is the work that you're doing impacting, like combating this gentrification and giving um, infrastructure in the city for people who are going through this type of disparity to actually come up out of it and get into a better place and not just a reoccurring cycle because I know you all are not positioning yourselves as a transitional living house you're not positioning yourself as an emotion emergency shelter y'all really are creating something that is leading to home ownership and leading to something just a better situation for trans folks can you describe the work that you're doing yeah, absolutely. So um, first with the, um, I always like to tell people that that statistic comes from the U.S. Trans Survey, but the real, um, the real T is, <laughs> right, is that in our community, it's 100%. And I'm not saying that we've all been homeless, but we, are, we all have that proximity. Like it's a hundred percent. Either you, either you have faced it, either you have faced eviction, either you know someone who has been evicted or has been homeless. Uh, and when we say homeless, we don't mean that you're on the streets. You could be couch surfing. You could be living out of hotels. Um, you know someone. So yes, I think it's a hundred percent of uh, trans folks of color in our city. Uh, specifically, but House of Tulip, I, I just, I also want to just name that um, we're providing long-term housing solutions, right? One part of that is providing emergency, uh, emergency relief and emergency shelter, yes. But the second part of that is acquiring property um, and acquiring it from um, preferably uh, black community, right? So the property that we just purchased in New Orleans, which is a uh, twelve-bedroom property, it was uh, it was we bought it from a black woman. Her, her husband had passed away, and she just no longer uh, was able to keep the property up. And so 
that is the property that we're buying. We're also going to be buying small plots, small plots of land. And then when funding is continuous and stabilizes, we'll be putting homes, not tiny homes, but homes on those properties. And then we'll be positioning, putting our community members in a position to acquire those homes. Um, and also House of Tulip will help support them through that process, right? And incentivize them going through the process and supporting them um, with things like upkeep and um, uh, utilities and um, how to maintain a property, right? So that's what we're positioning ourselves to do long-term, right? That's, that's, the, that's how we're setting our organization up and we're also setting it up in a way that it's sustainable to do that. Um, and so that's how we're going to combat gentrification is by keeping Black-owned properties Black by in, inside of a Black-led organization. Um, and, you know, if we have to sell off a property or two to keep our doors open, who knows? That may be an option, too, but we want to make sure that we're selling it back to our Black community. Right. Um, so that's the way that we're going to combat gentrification. But the most important thing to us right now is that we know that we are about to face upwards of 44 million evictions nationwide and that we have to we're working tirelessly to get these doors open so that our community will not be uh, on the streets in uh, during a pandemic. I always wondered that I always wondered um, how or how has COVID how has COVID altered your plans in regards to having uh, a place, a shelter for people that's going to be coming in and out and that type of stuff? I always wonder how that, uh, that has altered your programming. Has it, ha has it altered any of your, of your plans? It, it definitely has. And, you know, we have to think about, like, you know, people have to go in quarantine, right? So the first resident we take in will have to be in the home alone for 14 days by themselves. Uh, and then, you know, still have regular COVID testing, right? Um, but there, there comes a point where it's like, it's inevitable because if, if, if said person gets a job, right? You know, you can't, we can't isolate them forever, you know? So I think one thing that we've talked about is like, what is, what is regular testing look like? Um, what is non-essential work look like? What does non-essential travel look like? Um, but also just realizing that most of the people that we're going to be serving were either in a position where they couldn't, uh, they didn't have the protections that they needed uh, on the street, but knowing that when they come in here, they won't, they won't be, um, they won't be vulnerable to those situations. So we can kind of keep them in from that until there is some type of um, alternative to work or um, non-essential travel or social activities. So I don't want to frame it like, oh, you can't leave this place, but it's for the safety of everyone. We have to make sure that, you know, uh, we're being responsible. And part of that is if you don't have a job, we're not forcing you to get one right now. If you're not in school, we're not forcing you to go to school right now. Because one of the things at House of Tulip is, when you stay at House of Tulip, we only, there are only two requirements that we have. Either we help you get a job or we help put you through school. Pick one. And so, real. 
And so, you know, that's the only requirement that we have, you know, other than, you know, staying safe, nonviolent. So, yeah, but it has altered it. And I will tell you, um, it's been very frustrating because I'm not a CDC expert <laughs> and we haven't had much, um, we haven't had expert guidance from federal administration. Um, nor do we have any kind of solutions. The only solutions that we really had are wear a mask and stay inside, isolated from everyone. And you say that like a like a true organizer because we that's how we always think. We like what's the solutions <laughs> that's gonna happen? It's kind of strange being in a situation where we don't because we don't know the virus well enough. We don't we don't we can't really have any solutions. Um, I want to go back to something you said. Uh, a few minutes ago about um, those being the two requirements because um, I don't, I don't think that's too much, but one of the things that we do as program creators and people who lead actual impactful work in community um, that we all do, I want to, I want to talk about how important it is to provide zero barrier programming for our community. And can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of times we see, uh, like, um, I'll use an example of a certain uh, organization or healthcare organization we have in, here in New Orleans. And um, the, one of the only ways that you can get assistance from them is if you're a person that's living with HIV, right, which poses a barrier to people who aren't living with HIV but have other uh, healthcare or access needs uh, to healthcare. Um, in order to get the resources to pay their rent or to get bus tokens or, you know, vouchers to get blood pressure medications. Um, there are all types of barriers there. So it almost, you know, it, it glamorizes um, the life of our community members who are living with HIV because in their mind they think, well, if I get HIV, then all my rent will be paid and I'll, I, it'll be much easier. But we know that's not the case. Similarly to like a lot of these housing programs, right? Um, either um, you have to be um, a cis woman with child to, uh, to be housed or sheltered, or you have to be a cisgender man uh, in order to be sheltered. It can't be anything in between. Um, you can't be navigating sobriety, um, right? So, you know, you, you, people with disabilities, um, they don't, they're not accommodating or nor do they have uh, the access that they need. Um, and so really when we were thinking about what it really means to be zero barrier, right? It's like, how can we accommodate people who are navigating sobriety, you know, and what that looks like. I mean, I myself have navigated sobriety, you know, like when I was heavily involved in sex work, I found myself self-medicating just to, to keep myself fed and housed, right? but to also just numb the fact that I really got to do this every day. Um, and so what does that look like? What does that, what does it look like uh, for someone with an animal that they just can't part with because that's the only family that they know, right? And so they really can't access these other shelters because they don't allow pets, right? What does it look like for a person who has a power chair, right, that you know, they're trying to go into the Salvation Army, but there's no accessibility there. What if, what if we have someone working at Burger King who doesn't meet the income requirement, 
but also doesn't make enough money to satisfy the market rent. Right? Hence them being homeless. So it's like we think about all these different things that adversely affects our communities. And it's just like, if it's not this, it's that. You know, and so we have to really just think about a way and like, what does it mean to really provide uh, affordable yet, yet zero barrier housing? But we wanted to remove the affordable piece completely because, you know, the first stages of House of Tulip, you, you, you're not paying anything. Uh, no one is paying anything. Um, and so, you know, and that's one thing that we try, we, we were trying to talk to our mayor about is what does it truly look like to, uh, to eradicate homelessness, removing the financial component, right? We can afford to do it because let me tell you why, why they can afford to do it. Because at the beginning of the pandemic, they were forced to buy out hotels for the homeless population for months at a time. And we're not just talking about the Fleabag Hotel or the, you know, the pay by hour hotel. We're talking about Hilton's and Ritz Carlton and JW Marriott, and they're not cutting a deal with you. You're paying their nightly rates. So if you could do that, if you were for, if you were forced to do that, all of that money that you spent on that, you could develop a whole program to combat homelessness. Oh my God, I want to thank all of our new patrons this week. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yay, 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 yay. So not only are you helping to sustain this particular podcast, you know, I also donate to other podcasts. I donate to other organizations. I have my finger on the post of the community and I know a lot of grassroots organizations that are doing great work out here so you're not only helping to sustain us you're helping to sustain other people in a community because I put my money where my mouth is you know that's just the kind of bitch I am community is fuck <laughs> so thank you I really really appreciate you and if you have not become a patron why have you not? You can donate as low as a dollar a month. It doesn't matter. Anything helps. Please. Do I have to play Sarah McLaughlin and show you puppies? Like, what do I have to do? Do I have to do resort to what the white people do to get you to give them money? <laughs> All righty. Anyway, thank y'all. And the Patreon and PayPal link is at the bottom. Back to the show. I want to be petty for a little bit because I want you made me think about something that happened to us, the Black Trans Women's Inc. this morning. So we had a food pantry thing that where we were mailing people who couldn't get out of their house food, like boxes of food and stuff that was donated to us, right? This white single mother commented on our stuff this morning and she said, so what, are you, so what you're saying is that you have to be a trans woman to receive food for y'all? What if I'm a single mother who needs help? This is a white woman commenting on our posts, <laughs> really not understanding how we need to be specific. You literally can, you are a white woman who, you just talked about how sometimes barriers, <laughs> you gave an example of being a single mother is acts, gives you access to certain programming. And you're sitting here coming to a trans-led org that is meant to help one of the most disparaged 
populations. <laughs> Honey, you can go in the stamp or you can go in the stamp office right now. They're gonna roll out the red carpet for you and print you a card and put your yams on the same day. I know some girls that's getting thirteen dollars in stamps that ain't got a a window, a pot, or a coin, and only get it got approved for thirteen dollars. Girl, stop playing in my face. Stop playing in my face. So, thinking about disparities. So, there's a beautiful quote by you, Aria, that I think is amazing, that I think uh, really just, I felt it. Um, you said, our disparity is real. Absolutely. But so is our joy. So is our resilience. So is our power. So is our beauty. And these attributes are what shape us and have influence in the world. I think that that's amazing, particularly because there's also a program that you do, um, the Queen Culture Initiative, which is a social power empowerment movement where you are literally creating moments and creating, um, you know, a, a sisterhood and highlighting the joys that, that happen when we come together and when we actually create culture. So I wanted you to talk about that too, because a lot of times, especially in the nonprofit sector, we, because it's turning into a hustle, we, we're, we're getting on the stage and all the panels and like, oh, woe is me. Oh, woe is trans life. And oh, oh, all these things against me, which certain things can be true, but there is a certain narrative that is not allowing us to be full human beings that along with this disparity, we also have so much great things to offer that we see when we come together um, as trans women. So can you talk about why that, why, why focusing on that joy, focusing on um, the beauty and the culture of what we do and who we are and, and cultivating those moments for us as a community who don't have access to a lot of things, cultivating those great, beautiful moments are important to your work? Our disparity is real um, because, you know, we know that as trans people, we are oppressed at every level of society. Um, and, 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 though, and that is very, very real. We never want to gloss over, over that reality. But I also think it is um, destructive and disempowering when we don't also allow um, the the nuances of our experience to be seen. Um, and, you know, so much of my experience with other trans women has always been full of joy and, um, and camaraderie. And I think it's a really dangerous lie to just promote the disparity to activate like the trauma porn of of our lives and 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 to not also be working towards building how we can come to eat together and um and have access to to spaces that are not designed for us um and and to find ways to actually empower uh trans women to see themselves and and to experience um these moments with each other because uh, that's to me that's what keeps us that's what when we're isolated when we're struggling with depression um when we're at home and and we start to you know look within and question whether life is worth living or um you know all those things uh, 
those, those moments, those beautiful moments of life is what we hop back to. Um, and so I think, you know, that's why I always say that queen culture was definitely like, um, it is, it was sort of dreamed up in a way to, as my own sort of therapy. Um, and I figured if I needed it, then so many other people needed it. Um, because, you know, for our work, all of us can relate. Um, at the time that I created queen culture, queen culture, excuse me, um, I was traveling the country. I was doing speaking engagements, um, specifically for tech companies and corporations. And, you know, they would have me on stage and, you know, I'd show up happy to do the gig, happy to meet people. You know, I can be bubbly. And, and then they'd be like, what's the one thing they need to know about trans people? <laughs> or, <laughs> or um, you guys are so marginalized and disenfranchised. Like you guys just don't have any privilege. And, life is really hard for you guys and and and, da, 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 da. and i'm like my life is great <laughs> like i mean i still deal with the the issues that every trans woman in america is dealing with but um you know i have friends that i love like um you know like life is both very complicated and and then also like inspiring like like i don't who wants to wake up every morning and own this idea of like trans people are marginalized and disenfranchised and experience high rates of violence and discrimination and unemployment and murder and violence and HIV. And like, like who wants to wake up and be like, yes, I'm proud of that. Like that's hard. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a weight that I don't think we as trans people should have to carry in this moment of visibility. I think we can also be like, yes, and, you know, there is nothing like when a group of Black trans women come together and we celebrate each other and hang out and just play the dozens, read, kiki, like, you know, there's nothing like that. Those are my best moments when I think of um, my experiences with, with other Black trans people. Um, even when I didn't have any money, I was sleeping on the train and stuff, and I would go to the block to do, you know, sex work. What I remember, I don't remember getting into the nasty tricks as cars and, you know, uh, dropping down and getting my eagle on for, a coin, you know, for 40 bucks or whatever. I don't remember those moments. Thank you, Jesus. But I do remember, um, I do remember, you know, running into the girls on the block and kicking and um, those, those are the moments that come to mind when I'm like, oh. Those were the good days. Like, no, girl, no, they weren't. But, <laughs> but it's it's those women that I got to be around and learn so much from and and see. Um, and so that's what you know, queen culture is all about. Um, we've done a lot of different things. Like we've uh, worked with Sephora to have the store closed down so that Black trans women can have a private luxury shopping experience um and kiki and 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 talk about things like self-esteem and self-confidence you know as it relates to makeup and and beauty products or whatever but then we've also done like the the deeper dive um efforts like we've done stuff with the commonwealth club to discuss like the state of uh violence um against us and um having organizers like diamond on the the panel to to talk about the nuances in the South in particular. 
Um, and then I think we've become more famous just for the retreat. Uh, the retreat where we took, I think it was like eight to 10 black trans women to Hawaii, all expenses paid. Um, you know, <laughs> it was quite beautiful. <laughs> I, I can't say that it was quite beautiful, but I also learned a lot. And, um, in the experience, I was one of the facilitators, um, in the experience we had some really, really intense moment. It was me and Valerie Spencer, who is a licensed therapist, and we really came together, really kind of cracking some things open within the community. There was some tears shed. Well, the group that was there, there was some tears shed. There was some, you know, some yelling. There was some, you know, just some moments of where we really had some therapy sessions where we really, um, you know, broke down some barriers and became friends with some of the people that was there. And also on top of this, we were just um, exposed to a level of luxury that only a trick would give me <laughs> back in the day. But you said, Aria is amazing in the sense that how she, you know, creating these moments is definitely um, a skill that she has. I can definitely attest to the experiences, experience not only being just luxury moments of like that, but also being a powerful moment of community building and really coming together and um, breaking the yokes and having the hard conversations on what are the barriers to, to that stopping us as a group of trans women, a group of black women, a group of women who, um, who want to build community, what are the barriers that stopping us from doing that? So it definitely was a powerful moment for me that I'll never forget. I got two more questions. I did want to ask you, Mariah, so... Aria just talked about like being past the torch and, you know, carrying these heavy issues. Um, and we recently just lost one of our icons with Monica Roberts. You know, she's an icon in our community. You done, you have done work in, there are some laws in New Orleans, the crimes against nature laws that historically has targeted LGBT people of color in the area creating a clear and effective pathway to um, dis disproportionately incarcerating trans people. And you, and in your past, you have worked, and currently, you have done work around um, dismantling these historic laws that, have, that are still affecting people now. Can you talk about that work a little bit? Because I want people to understand that when we are talking about disparities, these are long time, decades, centuries long, um, things that we're coming up against that our elders fought against or were affected by, and then now we've been passed the torch and we are still carrying the responsibility of dismantling these kind of structural systems that are putting us in jail, leading us to homelessness, or so-and-so and so-and-so. Can you talk about um, you combating these fucking archaic laws in your city? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Crimes Against Nature law, um, one, is a is an extremely outdated law that uh, charges one with a felony and has a, or did have a sex offender uh, registry requirement. And that law stated that if any two, if any two beings uh, engaged in non-procreative sex, um, then they could be charged with this law. And this law, <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry, I kiki too. This law, um, 
this law uh, immediately adversely affected uh, same gender loving people. Um, um, and then went on to adversely uh, and disproportionately affect uh, trans women, specifically black trans women. Um, and I can speak uh, to her story because she's one of my dear friends and um, I have consent to, but Wendy Cooper actually um, is a dear friend who, who fought against that for a long time because she was affected by the crimes against nature statue. And she was forced to register as a sex offender. And, you know, me just being young and carefree, I didn't know anything about this when I was in my early 20s and, you know, surviving and, you know, realizing that this could have easily been me. And, you know, just seeing the way that it had, had affected her and it, it had really limited her um, life in a way that limited her from accessing housing and benefits, um, it was just really heartbreaking. But even through all of that, she still went on to earn a master's degree, you know, while while fighting to clear her name uh, of that uh, off the registry. Um, and so Wendy actually did the work to get the ball rolling to get that law actually uh, repealed and revised. And then I more so came in and helped facilitate uh, the conversations around uh, why this law needs to be completely abolished, right? Uh, and then went on to serve on the mayor's task force where we discussed uh, policing laws that kind of encouraged uh, the pinpointing of trans people to charge them with this law. Kind of like walking while trans in New York, but a, a second line and down in New Orleans while trans, right? So, I mean, we had the condom law here for a long time. It said, if you were caught with more than one condom in your purse, you could be charged with solicitation, which back then was an automatic uh, crimes against nature charge and an automatic sex offender registry requirement. And so because of the organizing that has been done by women before me and the experiences that have been shared by them, and then my ability to be able to come in and really be that facilitator and that voice and to get into rooms, to speak to people with they didn't, that they didn't have access to really empowered me to just help it, help this message reach uh, the ears that it needed to reach. But also just wanting to acknowledge that Wendy was the catalyst that really, uh, that really helped bring all this to light and just shed a light on the the discriminatory laws, one of many discriminatory laws in Louisiana. Um, and so it wasn't just me, it was me working side by side with Wendy, but Wendy had already begun that work uh, long before I came into the picture. So she just, I, it was just an honor and a privilege to, to pick up some of the fight with her. Yes, and we I still talk continue to, to do that today. Wendy. We talked about Wendy in one of our Trans 101 segments in um, a couple of, maybe like a year ago. So we definitely have featured Wendy's work here and talked about her getting that ball rolling. I think that this is, I think that's amazing and I think it's beautiful. And I think this is a perfect example of why every city should have LGBT task force, every city should have some kind of committee where you are talking to the people on the ground 
talking to the people in, in community so that we can we can give you the nuance of how some of these because so I'm sure somebody wasn't even paying attention or somebody was who didn't know how this uniquely adversely put us in situations where it's making it even harder for us me being on a fucking sex registry how that can affect me getting a job how that can affect me getting housing these are direct effects of my housing disparity direct effects causes of my um, housing disparity and causes of me not being able to work and so have it for something that has the violence that you face because of being on that registry right like people seek you out something uh, with, right well, for something that's mischaracterized like yeah i was yeah i was solicited yeah i was engaged in the solicitation but give me my misdemeanor and let me go on right this is consensual right? sex between me and some grown right. men you're trying to give me a slap me with a whole felony and a law and a, a requirement that is so heavily associated with child molestation right. which is also a a very a very a sharp stereotype that we have to combat every single day not because we are, but that's the picture that people have painted. It, you know, we saw it with the bathroom, the bathroom bills and, oh, you, they're going to assault your wife and your children. And, you know, the gain, like all of these stereotypes, like we have to fight against. So imagine walking around with this, um, this, uh, this ID documentation that has it written across the front then mailers that are sent out across the entire area where you live that has your address and everything on it, it's, it, it makes you a sitting duck. So this is my last question for both of you. I want to know what does it look like, feel like, smell like, act like? What does it look like to thrive, not just thrive, um, to, I mean, not just survive, but to thrive? What does it look like to thrive in this world and not just survive? Because it seems like some of us are just surviving. How do we as a community thrive? I, you know, I think, ooh, I don't know. I think my idea of thriving as a community means um, we're not running these organizations. We are, we are you know, doing the things that... Uh, really bring us joy other than this right other than being uh vessels of this word what if we want to be news anchors or uh um sportscasters or doctors and lawyers and real estate agents or we want to be entrepreneurs seeing ourselves in these places seeing ourselves represented um in these um in, in these media outlets, uh, being able to say, uh, Brianna Jenkins is my lawyer and she's representing me in my civil lawsuit against uh, a client who didn't like my establishment. You know, I'm, I'm thriving. Like when I can go to my people uh, to get what I need, whether I need to go get a checkup or whether I need to go get a movie ticket, right? It's like, that's, that's when our community is thriving, when we're living off of the labor of each other. So yes, I think like, yeah, I want to, I want to buy a car. Well, I'm going to Diamond's car dealership, buy my car, because guess what? In, in the white community, they can say that. Well, my, my neighbor 
He's a lawyer. My other neighbor is a doctor who does my annual physical. The other one sold me my house. You know? The other one is my travel agent. The other one cuts my lawn from their lawn cutting service. They don't even have to leave. They don't even have to leave their neighborhood to get everything they need. They could just pick up the phone and dial three doors down and they got it. I want to see a neighborhood where all my neighbors are trans. Like, you know, and trans professionals that got coin and don't have to worry about their lights being turned off or them being fired for a job because uh, of transphobia or xenophobia or anything like that. Like, I want, uh, like, the re the real meaning of what it means to thrive, like carefree living. Child, pick up the phone and ask me if I want to take a vacation and I have the means to do it. Like, that's what, yes, we deserve that. I mean, I would love to be, live like the girls on Sex in the City, but. <laughs> okay. But yeah, that's, that's what thriving. I think. That's literally right. thriving. To me, right. I thriving is, is more than enough. Thriving is right. it's not just I'm, de I'm, I'm dealing with a little bit. Thriving is more than what I need. I want to be that person. What about you, Art? Forgetting about the word oppressed. <clears throat> Go ahead, Ari. Oh, I think I'm a little more morbid, y'all. Like, <laughs> you know, we live under capitalism and because of a capitalist economy and society, like, you know, poverty will always be um, an experience, right, under this landscape. Um, but I think, for me, a state of thriving that I really imagine for trans people is that, um, that we own our own banks and our own grocery stores, that we... Um, that we own our neighborhoods, right? Um, and that um, that we move away from as much as we can from the idea of scarcity, uh, that we're not in competition with each other um, for the same resources, that there's actually, you know, an abundance um, and there's room for everybody. As soon as we move away from just token representation, Right, when there's so many trans actors in Hollywood that, you know, we don't know all their names, like there's A-list, B-list, C-list, D-list. I mean, I think that's thriving when there's, um, when sex work is not the only profession, because for so many in so many different parts of the country, it's still, it's either nonprofit or, um, you know, doing survival sex work or, or social justice, um, or maybe like, retail are like the the three main gateways for us to get a coin but when we start actually seeing us sort of immersed in different industries at different levels like that to me is is thriving when we have you know more than five trans folks to like look up to um who've quote unquote made it um you know what I mean? I'm, that's, yeah, that's the, the visual that I have. And I would also add, for me, thriving is us having less barriers around loving ourselves in regards to our beauty, in regards to our bodies, um, less barriers in finding love and companionship, um, really being able to have 
to run the gamut of the type of men that we can attract and be and be with in loving, healthy relationships. Um, the type of women, if we are lesbian, um, wh whatever whatever means that we have to get access to love and care and love within ourselves and lo love getting love outside of our, outside of our from people outside of ourselves. I think whatever those barriers in community, I think thriving for me as a trans woman is those barriers being knocked down and we're able to um, navigate love in a healthy, productive, loving way that we are out here just in, um, in relationships with ourselves and with our loved ones that just looks beautiful from the inside and out. So that's what thriving is for me. So before we go, we have to talk about an event that House of Tulip and Transgender Cultural District is sponsoring and putting on. It's a fundraising event. And so, Aria, tell us about it. Yeah, we're so excited and we can't wait for y'all to see it. Um, it happens tomorrow. Lies. No, girl, we're pre-recording, girl. Oh, yes. You are about to lose your job. <laughs> I'm like, wait, wait, why did my team, Sean is over here like, what? <laughs> I was like, we pre-recorded. I'm so excited about um, this event. I can't wait for y'all to see it. Um, the House of Tulip and the Transgender District are partnering together um, to have a winter gala fundraiser um, because we share um, we share um, a shared goal in combating poverty for our local communities here um, in San Francisco and New Orleans. Um, and and uh, House of Tulip is already underway with their. Um, housing strategy in their housing program, but the trans district is also launching one in in January, and so um, that's what we're raising funds for. And um, the event happens tomorrow, um, tomorrow night, five thirty Pacific, seven thirty Central Time, and eight thirty Eastern Time. And we have an incredible lineup. Um, we have, of course, Miss Diamond Styles of Marsha's Play. Um, as one of our hosts, and she uh, is taking the host uh, hosting stage with uh, T.S. Madison. Um, and then we have some special guests. We have um, Raquel Willis, um, who is a critically acclaimed writer and activist. Um, who else we got? Mariah, who else we got? We have uh, India Moore who is uh, actress, model, um, you know, star of the groundbreaking uh, show Pose. Um, we have uh, Teak Milan. Um, we also have Trace Lissette. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Um, we have performing Never Ending Nina, uh, one of my uh, beautiful sisters here from uh, the city of New Orleans who uh, resides in Los Angeles, California. Oh, she, she has an amazing voice. She has an amazing voice. I love mm -hmm. her. We yeah. have Lion, babe. Yeah, we have some live music from 
um, Lion Babe and from Don Richard of Danity Kane. Um, I mean, Formerly she's part of Kane. Right, but um, many may know her from um, from the days of Danity Kane. And, we got um, YZ. We got YZ. Um, and Dominique Morgan. Um, yes. Who will know she actually is the executive director of Black and Pink, but she's also a pop vocalist and she is releasing. Um, she's already released her her second album um, this week, and so you all can um, see her uh, do a music video premiere live performance um, tomorrow and uh, download her album on iTunes and wherever music is sold. Um, and Tanya oh, Boy Cannon from The Voice. Mm-hmm. And we have Jessica Six. Um, who uh, is led by Nomi Ruiz, who's Puerto Rican trans woman. They've had hits in in the dance music world across the acro- across the globe, um, and and more. We have so many more surprises up our sleeves. So I, I really want y'all who are listening to get the context of this. This is like literally is never happened. We have an event that is put on by trans people. Featuring trans artists, featuring trans hosts, this is fucking major. (laughs) I want y'all to understand the magnitude of this. We always talk about how we want to have programming that centers us, that's led by us. This is literally like an award show. Like uh, like an event that's literally for us, by us. Like, FUBU is fuck. Why wouldn't you support that? Yeah, and, and I want to point out, you know, in our industry and in, in nonprofit and social justice, we, I mean, we put this event together for two reasons. One, we as organizations often work in silos. Um, but, you know, um, Mariah and I have been thought partners on so many different things. Um, and it just made sense for us to do a joint fundraiser for our projects and, um, like, and to support work that we're both doing on, in different ways. And so really promoting that, um, you know, that we can come together and partner with each other. Most nonprofits actually do their galas by themselves, but um, we wanted to sort of share our resources to make it an even bigger magical night. Um, and, and that was part of why we did it. We also wanted to, you know, it's, it's the holidays, it's cold, it's, it's COVID, it's the flu, it's the cold, it's, the, it's all the things. And... We really, you know, 2020 has just been a roller coaster of a year. And, like, we just, you know, it's a free event. Um, we're not charging anything for our gala. And, like, we really just want people to come and just, like, you know, pull it up on their phone, their iPad, on the HDMI cord to the TV, like, whatever they got to do to just, like, get in the moment and celebrate and have good times and dance in their socks or play it in their car or wherever you are, like, um, just to like have some feel good moments. Um, and that's really what it's about. Like, of course we're raising money, but we wanted it to be free because we wanted anybody to be able to access it. Um, and just like hear exclusive original content, um, from these creators and, and performers and, and yeah, just to have a good night before the holidays, especially as trans people, the holidays can be, I don't know what it is, but you know, I already start feeling it right now. Like, there's that trigger of, like, oh, I'm going to be alone, and oh, this, and oh, that. 
And so just for us to come together how we can, which is virtually, um, and pop off and celebrate and have a good time. So I'm going to have all the information down in the bottom. The link is going to be down there for you to go. Like, like I already just said, it, it's free. You ain't got shit to do. We know it's going to be a fucking lockdown. <laughs> but especially a month before, we don't know what Trump going to do, but a month before we get a new administration. <laughs> so He about to lose his job. Yeah. <laughs> he about to lose your so, job. You ain't go. You you don't got nothing to do. It's free, so come and support your girls um, and your guys. That's gonna be there. Come and the non-binary people gonna be there too. So come, fuck with us. Let us know what you think and bring your good white. Bring your liquor. Bring your good white duties with the deep pockets. <laughs> yes. So they can come and enjoy the entertainment and give and support the work that these two orgs are doing. Oh my God, I'm I, I'm just so excited. So once again, thank y'all for coming on the show and yeah, happy. check all the links in the bottom. Bye y'all. Bye. Well, that's it. Thank you for coming and getting a taste of Marsha's plate. You can listen to us on iTunes. And SoundCloud, make sure you leave a review because we really need those five stars, y'all. And go like our Facebook page and leave some comments. We will be posting exclusive content every Thursday, so you definitely don't want to miss out. You can also follow us on Twitter and any other social media site at Marsha's Plate. If you like to donate or advertise with us, hit us up at diamondstyles at gmail.com. That's diamond, S-T-Y-L-Z, at gmail.com. And that's it for us, y'all. Bye. Bye-bye. You going to say bye, Mia? Oh, bye, y'all. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Every little thing's going to be all right. Don't you worry about a thing. Baby, it's going to be all right.